welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Gastola. I'm going to be interviewing, uh, coincidentally, uh, Marcy Wheeler about a case involving unauthorized disclosures. And uh, this is a journalist. Uh, she's been covering the trial of uh, former CIA officer Jeffrey Sterling, who uh, revealed uh, or allegedly, the government says, leaked information related, related to um, a botched CIA operation in Iran. We'll be getting into uh, more specific details related. But, Marcy, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Uh, so I guess let's start. Um, this case has now gone to a jury and uh, you both heard and wrote about the closing arguments. Uh, there, there may or may not be a verdict when this show is posted on Sunday, though it may be unlikely. But sort of give us a rundown on the stories that both the prosecutors and then the defense have told that are competing against each other in this trial. disclosure is about the CIA information in Chapter 9 of James Rice's State of War. And he told this story about how the CIA enlisted this Russian to basically give nuclear blueprints to the Iranians. And Risen had been told, and I think there actually was evidence submitted at trial, that uh, there were problems with with the operation, partly that the Russians believed that they were good uh, plans and then looked at the plans and saw them and said, this is never going to work, which made the case officer, who was Jeffrey Sterling, worried. And then when the Russian went to Vienna to hand the documents over to Iran, he bungled it. Um, so there actually is reason to be concerned about us stealing these blueprints to, to Iran. Um, but the CIA doesn't think so. The CIA thinks they did a really good thing. And uh, and this book, first, Ryzen had a story that he pitched to, that uh, the New York Times has been published in 2003, and Condi Rice got botched. And then he came out with his book in 2006. And um, the government's convinced that Jeffrey Sterling is pretty much the only source for this chapter, although that's not possible. Um, and... The, the problem is that the government has no evidence of that. The best piece of evidence, I think, is that some language from Sterling's uh, performance review shows up in the chapter. Now, he has a copy of the performance review, which is unclassified, so he could give that to Ryson without any problem. The government argues, well, he would have had to explain to Ryson that these lines from his performance review are about Merlin, are about this operation. Um the defense has said, well, look, uh, you know, the FBI's first suspects for the Senate intelligence community because Sterling did go to them and say, I've got concerns about this, and they leak all the time. And here are these other people. Here's some stuff that could only have come from Merlin. So the defense has basically said, here are all these other people that could have told Ryson, some of whom the FBI didn't even investigate. Uh, for example, the Senate intelligence community refused to cooperate. And so the guy that uh, Bill Harlow suspected from the start was never interviewed, his records were never collected, and so on. And so, um, the, the, but, the, but the narrative they're telling is, um, you know, the, the, 
government is saying, look, Jeffrey Sterling was serious because he had a discrimination suit and a publication review board suit. He lost those, and so he retaliated by going to the press with this story about an operation that was really a tremendous success, but he claimed was a failure. Um, and he pitched it as a failure just so that Ryerson would actually publish it. Uh, the, the defense is basically just saying there's no evidence. I mean, they have uh, they have the, the performance review that I told you about, and they have record of phone calls between Ryson and Sterling. But even the phone calls, some of them time-wise make no sense for Sterling to have been a source for the book or the, or the story. Um, and I think the defense has shown that Ryson got the story, went to the CIA, CIA said, please don't publish spent three more weeks uh, working on the story and came back with far more evidence. So it's clear that he had more sources, and the government doesn't want to talk about that. So, um, But ultimately, the government finally said, this is about patriots, the secret CIA people who keep us safe. Jeffrey Sterling is no patriot. He's, he's, he betrayed these patriots, so find him guilty. And, it, you know, they're, they're reverting to this uh, good and evil patriots betrayal, and so on. Yeah, it's a very primal pathos. That's, you know, how, that's the sort of vitriol they had for Chelsea Manning, so I'm not surprised that you could deploy that. Familiar. And that's how they use it yeah. against Kiriakou, too, you know, it's very... So, uh, now I, I know that you were covering how, uh, essentially, this trial is happening in, uh, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, in the Eastern District, and this is probably the wrong venue for this prosecution to be taking place. Right. So if, even if we assume that Jeffrey Sterling is a source for license, because they have no actual evidence, uh, they can't prove whether Rison I mean, Sterling was a source for Rison in 1992, when he was still living in New York. Um, and so, I think he was still in New York at that point. Um, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, uh, you know, they can't... Sterling lost his access to information about Merlin in 2000. Um, so, they, the government can't prove that this... If there was a leak, that it happened in 2000 or 2002 or 2003 or 2004. And starting in 2000, late 2003, Sterling moved back to Missouri, where he's from. And so uh, on a lot of, you know, on, on some of their most substantive presidents, he was in Missouri. Uh, Rifle was in D.C. or Maryland, either at work or at home. And so there was no tie to Virginia. Um, even more, they, they kind of, as they do in these cases, they tacked on an obstruction of justice charge. And I, I think they did it just in case. It, the, the jury objected to all the espionage charges and wanted to find him guilty of something. But the problem is, his actions in that alleged obstruction of justice charge are that he deleted the email to to Bryson and deleted it sometime between April and July of 2006. He was in Missouri. Bryson was in Maryland. The uh, server for the emails was in Washington, presumably. And therefore, there was absolutely no action taken in Virginia. And one of the first questions asked to the jury 
was, you know, uh, what about venue and obstruction? So I suspect they were going to turn that one out on venue, on venue charges. And then the question is whether they believe they have any evidence that anything else happened while he was in Virginia. And so what's this absurd thing about the hairdresser that testified? Because I think that's rather wild. Yeah, so they, they, they don't have any proof that anything happened in Virginia. Um, they're, they're, making, they're making two arguments to, to claim that something happened in Virginia. One is they claim that Sterling had a document and handed it to Ryson sometime. They don't know when. And they claim that because they found four documents in Sterling's house when they searched it in 2006 that were classified sort of, that means that if he ever had classified documents, he'd store them at home. And they claim that since he lived in Virginia before he lived in Missouri, the fact that they found four sort of classified documents at his home in 2006. Now, these classified documents, three of them pertain to dialing into the CIA using rotary phones. <laughs> they date to 1987. They uh, they probably were retroactively declassified, you know, shades of the Thomas Drake case. So this is what they're building that argument on. The other the other of the documents is his first performance review from when he was a trainee when he wasn't doing anything secret. And then um, so that's one argument for getting venue in Virginia in the absence of having any evidence. The other one is they want to argue that by selling books, by conspiring to get books with this story sold in Virginia, uh, Sterling committed an act in Virginia. But they also wanted to prove that somebody who didn't have clearance had access to the story in Virginia. And years ago, the FBI officer who investigated this, Ashley Hunt, saw that her hairdresser uh, saw, saw, saw the book on her hairdresser's station or what have you. And so very recently, because the hairdresser was not on the witness list, very recently the FBI officer reached out to her hairdresser and said, can you please come testify that you bought the book? So this really lovely hairdresser woman comes in and she's got a beautiful, hi, she's very joyful and such a break from the gloom and doom national, national security people who would come through. And she's like, yeah, I read every chapter, yes, sir. Uh, but then the judge in the case, who I think herself was dubious of, of venue, says, well, where'd you get the book? She said, I don't know, Borders or, or, or Barnes and & Nobles. And she didn't get where Judge Brinkman was going. And then Brinkman was like, no, no, where did you buy it? Was it Arlington, uh, Alexandria? She said, well, probably Alexandria. But you know, it might have been Bowie, Maryland, because that's where my boyfriend was. <laughs> so they brought him this witness to prove venue, and... She may not have even bought the book yet. So I remember from covering covering the Manning trial that one of the things that was the most fascinating was um, when the kind of secrecy games would be played where uh, the government was paranoid or or hiding information that was critical to their case and, and sort of the different restrictions that were put in place. And I know there have been some similar ones in place throughout the Sterling trial, and I would you talk about those? Well, one of the things they did is they had, I don't know, something like five or six CIA witnesses, and so they had a giant screen placed up so that all of those witnesses, uh, some of whom are about as secret as Alfredo Bukowski, I mean, their identity is known, but we're all pretending, we're going through the theater of it. And so they 
um, testified under their name and first initial of their last name, and they testified behind the screen and, you know, who to be with them. So, um, they, um, one of the most interesting things, and I'm going to write a piece on this today, is um, not for secrecy reasons, but for, in fact, I don't even know, I'm going to have to go back and read why they did this, but one of the things that uh, the protection order covered is that uh, Sterling, remember, he sued the CIA for uh, equal opportunity discrimination in New York, and CIA succeeded in changing the venue, as they did here, to Virginia, which put him in a much more, uh, much less uh, favorable position. And then, in both places, they invoked state secrets. And his case got thrown out on state secrets grounds. And he appealed it. He appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the defense is not allowed to tell the jury that's why Sterling's case got thrown out because the CIA was declaring state secrets over the very same performance reviews that the government is relying on to prove that Jeffrey Sterling was a force to stand driver. That's rather fascinating. I mean, it's just uh, another window into how they pursue these state secrets claims. Right. I mean, I think they're doing it because they don't want they don't want the jurors to start thinking about why they're revealing secrets here that they didn't reveal there. Um, but it, but it's ridiculous. I mean, they're keeping secrets from the jurors. Their invocation of secrets in the past. So I guess it's like a, you know a wrapping thought here uh, because you've got to get to the courthouse and uh, you know prepare for any kind of verdict that may come down in the next days. Uh, how would you characterize uh, this this prosecution as it fits into a number of prosecutions we've seen coming from the Obama administration? I mean, even even including if you if you wanted to raise it. The, the collateral damage done to to journalism in the process of the prosecution? Well, on journalism, um, it's a spark. I mean, they spent nine years pursuing James Rice's testimony. Um, they read the stipulation that substituted both for Ryzen in person and for Ryzen's transcript. He, he uh, kind of did a dry run before the trial started. And it was, you know, it's maybe a 20-page transcript. Uh, 20 page, uh, 20, sorry, 20 line stipulation. It's very short. And three of the jurors were madly taking notes. And I, and I could imagine them thinking, why have we gone through this entire trial and not heard from James Risen? Um, the investigation was unbelievably intrusive into Risen's life. They, they, got, uh, they got his bank records. And so they entered into evidence, just as an example, bank records from 2004 showing that Ryzen spent $40 with FedEx. They had no proof that he sent the FedEx to Sterling. They just felt like it was important to show that Ryzen in 2004 spent $40 sending a FedEx to somebody. They don't know who. Um, they also showed him spending money in Vienna uh, at the Hotel Intercontinental. So they, they got these records to no end. They got these records and they were useless in trial, but they nevertheless dangled them in trial. The FBI officer in the case claims that she was not permitted to get Ryzen's uh, phone records, but one of the things I feel like is, I mean, this case is unbelievably circumstantial. 
And, well, I think the government may nevertheless win it just because they invoke national security and patriotism and what have you. The journalists in, the, in Portland were going, whoa, why did this ever go to trial? And, and then not just me, not people who might be sympathetic to, to uh, sources. Um, you know, they were just like completely straight journalists going, you know, I'm angry. I'm angry that the government per- pursued this case and pursued it as long as they did. And, and I'm left wondering whether, um, for example, they did get Rison's phone records that show more substantive conversations with Sterling, but they can't censor them because they got the, the records illegally, right? Either under stellar wins or um, they piggybacked off of the illegal wiretap program or what have you. Um, I'm wondering whether... Um, whether William Welch, if you remember, was this incredibly corrupt prosecutor was involved in this case for a while. I'm wondering whether this case still thinks because he was involved with it and no one, no one, no one thought to shut down the stupidity that he set in motion. I also think it's possible that, um, that, that they really did, as, as, as appeared, go to such length in this case because it is a case where you really needed Rison to implicate Sterling. And that meant that they had a really good excuse to throw Rice in prison for during jail for not testifying against Sterling. Um, and now Holger, trying to reclaim his legacy, has decided not to make Rice testify, and they're left with a common face. And so there's, there's some backstory how it is the government was allowed to go forward with this prosecution when they have, I mean, they may win it anyway, but the, but the evidence is really thin. It's entirely circumstantial, and it's not very strong circumstantial evidence. And I guess just uh, a, a sort of a, a closing clarification from you, or if you have any uh, comment on on you know the the, the person of of Jeffrey Sterling, uh, because of the lack of case, I guess Jeffrey doesn't have to really explain himself at all. Uh, but for people who are wanting to consider him. As a whistleblower, I just would put it out here, and, and you can address this, that he was internally going to intelligence, or, or he was going to uh, Senate committees, right, and, and talking to them about the program, right? He went um, through all the official channels for his EEO and for his PRB complaints. And then as the Iraq war started in March of 2003, he's like, I've been wondering about this nuclear thing. We just gave the Iranians a blueprint. You know, I want somebody to check into it to make sure it wasn't really stupid. So yeah, he went to the Senate Intelligence Committee and the defense is arguing that him having gone to a very leaky Senate Intelligence Committee is what led, is where Rice got the story. I mean, he may have been picked off to a few, I mean, the defense is obviously not saying that, but um, but uh, the Senate Intelligence Committee refused to cooperate with the investigation, so I think that that's pretty plausible that somebody there talked to Rison and maybe to other people, but um, I think that uh, he did. I mean, and he, and it was, a, it was a legitimate worry. I'm more worried now than I was before the trial because, um, because there are aspects of it. They basically did this operation, which, A, you know, the CIA says it wasn't a stupid operation because we had a red team in New Mexico and, and our scientists couldn't get it to work, could only get it to work 
could only get these blueprints to work after three months. And I was like, wait, the entire premise of this is that the Iranians are working with Russian scientists to know these plans better than your red team scientists, however experienced they are. And if your red team scientists can get them to work after three months, then, you know, working with the Russians, presumably the Iranians might be able to do so. Maybe not three months, maybe two years, but nevertheless, you, you know, your red team did get those blueprints to work. The other thing that really concerns me is that, um, you know, that right, right, the, the government tried again. They were getting ready to send Merlin. I mean, he, they did use Merlin with other countries. We're not allowed to know what countries they are. So Merlin was handing out his, his blueprints to other countries. Um, but they were going to go back to Iran in May, in March of 2000, 2003. So basically at the, at the point when Bryson was about to tell the story, they were going to do it again. And I think that if, I mean, I, I assume there are quite a number of other sources, and I would assume that there's quite a number of other sources might find it really um, troubling that we would do it again um, for, for any number of reasons. And that, you know, and the operational security on this was stupid. We told the Iranians the name of the scientist. We told them where he worked in Russia. So we basically ID him, you know. Um, and the Iranians were close enough to the Russians at that point. They could just call and say, hey, do you know this, Joe? Um, and so, yeah, Sterling went to the Senate Intelligence Committee, and I have more confidence now that he met, might have had reason for concern than I did even before the trial. Well, thanks for giving your time. I know it's it's quite intense to cover a trial with so many layers and, and details in it, um, and I guess wish you luck in Alexandria as you continue to follow the trial. Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. Welcome to the discussion portion of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Costola, and uh, thanks again to Marcy Wheeler for being our guest and taking the time out of her intense coverage to talk with us. I forgot to mention the website where she's been posting all of her reports. You can go to exposefacts.org. That's E-X-P-O-S-E-F-A-C-T-S dot org if you want to read her dispatches. And now, uh, hey, Rania, it's great to have you for the discussion portion. Hello. Hello. Sorry. I uh, Kevin had to do an interview. He did the interview so early in the morning that, um, and I'm just awful and slept through my alarm. Let's just be honest here. <laughs> so I'm glad that Kevin got to interview Marcy, though. She's awesome. Um, and or uh, maybe you were preparing your eulogy for King well, Abdullah. Okay, you know, I was trying to look. I was trying to go with this. I slept through it story, so I didn't have to tell you about that. But because <laughs> he's a he was a he was a, a trailblazer when it came to the liberation of, of women. Yeah, well, I mean, I basically, um, I mean, I, it's a shame that I wasn't in Saudi Arabia to witness that as a woman myself. Um, I hear that because of him, women can be cashiers now. Um, and vote or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> All right. So, so yeah, we were, we're gonna. One of the things we're gonna start off here is just talking about 
uh, the way the media has been reacting. Yeah, and in case you live under a rock, um, not a rock, the country, but a rock. Sorry, it just sounded like a And not rock. in a rock. And not in a rock, but a rock. Um, but in case that is your current living situation, uh, King Abdullah, uh, the Saudi Arabian monarch tyrant man, <laughs> died. He's like, he's 90 years old and he passed away. And so now um, the U.S. establishment from Obama on down to every almost every single media outlet. I think every I don't think I've seen a single major media outlet go against this line is um celebrating him as a reformer who was like a voice for peace and moderation. Um now if you know anything about Saudi Arabia uh, which, you know, I, I assume that when you think of it you probably think of women who can't drive and like of really crazy, you know, uh, like Wahhabism, which is the basis and center uh, or which is like the root of the kind of Islamic extremism that Saudi Arabia has exported to other parts of the Middle East, you know, as a, as a proxy way to like, you know, uh, make sure democracy doesn't happen, <laughs> um, which has eventually come at the U S as blowback and as you know, other parts of the Middle East as blowback. Um, so you don't hear any of this though, in the mainstream news, you just hear that he was like a reformer and he's going to be deeply missed. And like Obama, I'm sure you saw Obama like offering his personal condolences and like, it's just really disgusting. I mean, uh, Richard Engel, um, uh, called him. I mean, this is, this is what really pissed me off is not only was he being heralded as like this voice of moderation and peace, but he was being celebrated for his role in the aftermath of the Arab spring. Um, now if you don't know what happened, Basic, full here, let me say this first. So Richard Engel on, MS, on NBC says, King Abdullah will be remembered as, quote, maintaining stability during the chaos of the Arab Spring. Um, and this was something that was, like, repeated by a lot of people. And what's really disgusting about that is that Saudi, the Arab Spring was such a threat to Saudi Arabia because any kind of democratic uprising is a threat to tyrants that the, um, the regime in Saudi Arabia uh, basically... Uh, you know, played a role in all these different countries to try their best to suppress these movements. In the case of Bahrain, uh, they crushed, they helped crush a democratic uprising against the monarchy there. Um, and it's like, it's very, very violently so. Um, and it got rarely any attention in the news. I think at one point CNN like censored a documentary about it. Yeah. Um, and in, uh, in, uh, in Egypt, uh, Egypt, or um, you know, Saudi Arabia stood by Mubarak until the very, very end, and even after that, like once the counter revolution happened and Sisi took over um, in this like bloody coup where he massacred a thousand people at Rabat Square, um, Saudi Arabia offered their support and hundreds of millions of dollars in economic aid to the new military coup regime. Um, Saudi Arabia also, like, has been playing a role in trying to push for war with Iran. Like, we often associate Israel with that, but Saudi Arabia wants war with Iran probably more than Israel in some, in some, in some respects. They're just not as vocal about it publicly. Um, but Saudi Arabia is obsessed with – oh, and in Syria. I'm sorry. Saudi Arabia basically exploited a democratic uprising in Syria um, by, like, by, by flooding the place uh, – by by um, encouraging jihadists to travel to Syria and fight and then flooding the place with and then funneling arms to some of the most extremist elements of those jihadists in Syria. And so basically played a significant role in turning what was a democratic uprising into, um, into like 
you know, what, what we now see where, like, ISIS and al-Nusra are, like, at the forefront of mm-hmm. fighting Assad um, and also, like, fighting civilians. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's funny. In Syria, it's like it was like a double, you know, it's like they were against. So Saudi Arabia is against Assad, the Assad regime, right? Um, but it was also against a democratic uprising. So it was, like, in a weird place of conflict. So the way to deal with that was to, you know, basically um, destroy the democratic uprising while making sure to, like, not, you know, help um, the Assad regime in any way. So, anyway, Saudi Arabia, this is just, like, the tip of the iceberg. I mean, Saudi Arabia has uh, contributed so much, um, probably more so than any other country in the region, and I I include Israel in that, um, to destabilizing um, the Middle East, uh, you know, in an effort to keep their uh, geographic hegemony, I guess, um, and, you know, keep themselves enriched and their Western allies enriched. So this is why, um, you see, you know, all these mainstream media outlets who care so much about democracy, you know, praising this, uh, this butcher. Um, and I call him a butcher too, because Saudi Arabia beheads people on the regular. They beheaded a woman a couple weeks ago. It was their 10th, it was their 10th beheading of 2015. Um, I mean, it's just laughable. And, you know, oh God, a couple of years ago when Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, a democratically elected and very popular leader, I might add, passed away the response was far far different than the kind of glorification and praise we're seeing right now of this um you know unelected tyrant yeah and uh people like Fareed zakaria uh this is the this is the quote i'll share uh basically putting him into this light as like this progressive liberal type saying he's the most probably the most progressive and liberal-minded king of Saudi Arabia since King Faisal, which is a long time ago, in the early 1970s, and he was genuinely determined to reform. And then these, like, media personalities describing... Uh, we'll get to the issue with that statement, but I also want to go on to, like, this this whole, like... Uh, like, h- how they're just, like, groveling at his feet uh, sort of mentality, like Farid saying, I had the opportunity to meet with him once, and what you could get, he, you got a sense of somebody who really was determined to move his country forward now. You know, it's a conservative country and a conservative society. And he kept emphasizing that to me, but he was very clear in the direction he wanted to go. You know, I mean, which is where, I mean, the, the, the women still can't drive in Saudi Arabia. So uh, the, the biggest point for all these people who have, like, talked about how he, he moved these women into spots where they could be recognized. I mean, it was tokenism. It's like, here, we'll send a couple of women to walk in the Olympics. So it looks like Saudi Arabia is moving towards equality, but it's like nothing's changing in Saudi Arabian society. Um, you know, I exactly. I would also add that he was an advocate for, like, some of the worst. Um, this is why the U.S. loves him so much. He once suggested to John Brennan that the U.S. should implant electronic chips into Gitmo detainees. Uh, this was revealed in, like, a WikiLeaks cable. Right. Um, I, one thing I found really, really funny about some of the language being used to describe him was, I believe it was in the New York Times um, obituary for him, or, like, eulogy, uh, where they said, hang on, I have to find this. It's, like, they're talking about um, how he's a voice for moderation or how he was, like, all about, you know, being a moderate and uh they specifically they specifically said hang on i'm trying to like 
it was like this this really really funny line where hang on oh by the way joe biden did you know joe biden is going to personally um you know give his condolences he's traveling to saudi arabia to to mourn um oh here it is okay so uh the new york times referred to him as a force of moderation um, and as evidence of that moderation, the New York Times says hundreds of militants, um, they've arrested hundreds of militants and ha- some have been ha- uh, beheaded. Like this was a, <laughs> it literally, that's the sentence. It says, it says <laughs> hundreds of militants arrested and some beheaded. Uh, that's the example of moderation. I mean, it's amazing. No one, no other country has done more to, um, to empower Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda mentality than Saudi Arabia. There was one WikiLeaks cable a few years back uh, that shows even Hillary Clinton admitting, basically, that Saudi Arabia is the biggest funder of terrorism in the region, um, specifically when it comes to organizations like the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Al-Qaeda type, you know, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda type terrorist groups. And I mean, that ideology that those groups follow, again, is rooted in the Wahhabism, the radical Wahhabism that Saudi Arabia, you know, preaches at home and ex- exports abroad. So it's just, I mean. And, and yet, you know, the way they remember the, the period between the relations with U.S. and Saudi Arabia around 9-11 is that, oh, it's, it, was just, it was just a rough patch. <laughs> but, but we got through it. I mean, and like, it obviously was there was the out, issue like of fi- fi- yeah. 15 of 19 of the hijackers were Saudi. But, you know, I mean... Wait, they weren't Iraqi? We, we just... What? Yeah, we just buried that, and uh, there's you know there's 28 pages from a 9/11 commission report that we made sure hasn't seen the light of day. All for the House of Saud, but it, it you know it just it was a rough patch because we were able to piece it all together and, and move on. Well, don't doesn't the Saudi Arabian like um fan, doesn't the Saud family like own part of Fox News? I mean, serious, like... No, no, I mean, they're, like, we're really close friends with, like, the Bush family, and now you you can have these uh, neocons who were, were big friends of the Saudi Arabian kingdom, and, you know, and, like, have their oil ventures and everything can come out and talk about how uh, sad they are to see, uh, you know, Abdullah pass away. Yeah, no, the, there's a Saudi billionaire... Um, is invested. Sorry, I was like looking this up. Is invested in um, in Fox News. <laughs> wow. Awesome. All right. Uh, well, but so, yeah. so let's let's move on and, and have you uh, talk to us a little bit about what's going on here with uh, you know Speaker Boehner having Bibi Netanyahu come and talk to Congress. Well, it's interesting because, you know, um, usually after the State of the Union address, which is given by the president this week, um, there are rebuttals, right? Um, It appears that the U.S. Congress has decided that a rebuttal should come from a foreign leader. Um, So it's like Netanyahu. That's how the White House is, like, framing it. It's like Netanyahu is coming to rebut Obama's, like, State of the Union speech. But it's not until March. um, So the GOP which controls both um, um, both houses of Congress, um, has uh, been trying to push through this bill with the help of some Democrats, been trying to push through a bill to increase the sanctions um, or to tighten the sanctions and put more sanctions on Iran. Um, it's a completely APAC, you know, um, APAC-written bill uh, that APAC is pushing for. So, you know, Congress is, of course, backing it. Um, and a big proponent of this bill is Bibi Netanyahu. Um 
So he's saying that he, like, he's basically going to come to Congress, invited by John Boehner, to demand that Obama put, you know, put more sanctions on Iran and basically to, like, blast Obama's foreign policy um, in respect to Iran. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm not usually a big fan of, like, Obama's foreign policy, but in terms of Iran, uh, the White House is right in this respect because they're saying that any – that putting more sanctions, they're very, very opposed to this bill, and they're they're saying that um, adding more sanctions is going to destroy the – the fragile negotiations that the international community is involved in um, with Iran over its nuclear program. Um, And that would be a very bad thing for world peace for that to be destroyed. Right. And so, um, so that's why Netanyahu is coming to, 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 you know, to call for this bill and to basically just like um, basically embarrass Obama, I guess like he does not, him and Obama don't like each other. Um, and, you know, Bibi is a very, I don't know why I'm saying Bibi like I know him. <laughs> Netanyahu is a very, like, neoconservative type figure. Like, he's like a, a you know, in, in the U.S., like, he would be a far-right figure. And in Israel, he's like a centrist, I guess. But, um, but anyway, so the White House is also, like, the White House is saying that when he comes, they, that, that Obama is not going to meet with him. Um, and they're claiming the reason for that is that because, uh, Netanyahu is coming to speak two weeks before Israeli elections. Um, and so a part of him coming to speak is actually has more to do with domestic politics and just like trying to get reelected as prime minister. Um, and so the White House is saying it's protocol, like whenever, you know, we, Obama doesn't, the president doesn't meet with leaders um, when there's an election around the corner for them. So that's what they're saying. But then they're also like, you know, anonymous officials from the Obama administration are criticizing uh, Netanyahu and saying that he spit in Obama's face and yada, yada. So it's this big, you know, bullshit diplomatic controversy um, where the white house is saying, or these anonymous officials are saying there's going, there's going to be a price for this, but like there isn't going to be, if there is, I'd be shocked. Basically all this is, is just, you know, it's, it's just about posturing, um, I would love to see there actually there be a price for this kind of intransigence. I mean, you have like a foreign leader who's coming to like manipulate U.S. Congress um, to try and sidestep the U.S. president. Like it's like I mean, it all seems fairly unprecedented. Like, do we we're, are, are there any examples in any of this of other times that like directly after the State of the Union, you have a foreign leader come to address Congress? I mean, I don't know for sure. Like, I'm not, like, a history buff in that respect, but I don't, I mean, I don't, I I don't know what the answer is. I mean, it is pretty shocking in that respect. Serious question of, like, so, I mean, does that mean we could have the leader, so could Boehner have the leader of Tajikistan come address (laughs) Congress and say, we want troops to take on Russia? I mean, like, like, what, like, where does it end? Uh, are we going to see more leaders? Would just be my rhetorical question: Who get to come and <laughs> and and make their demands of the U.S. Congress? I mean, and, and it's in, you know it's interesting you say that because what you, what you will see is you will see con- you will see more standing ovations for Netanyahu when he comes to speak than Obama got during the State of the Union, um, and that's how it typically is when an Israeli the Israeli Prime Minister comes to speak. Uh, the you know there's a very bipartisan support for like Kudnik policies. Um, from the Israeli government, and it's really disgusting, and it's also very um, creepy in terms of like when you think about okay, like those are our elected representatives. Why does this foreign leader have so much sway over our elected representatives? Um, so yeah, that's it. I mean, those are all really great questions. Uh, I I can't think of another time. So yeah, I guess in this respect, it is pretty shocking. 
It'll be interesting to see how it all goes. I think it's sort of funny, like, to see Obama and Netanyahu at each other. I'd like to see the president of the supposedly strongest country in the world have some stronger freaking words for, like, a tiny country the size of New Jersey um, acting like an asshole. But, <laughs> you know, all right. we'll have to wait and see. Okay, start. so... Uh, this other thing I want to talk about was a uh, much more heavy uh, sort of topic and issue. We we cover Guantanamo uh, fairly regularly, as we should, on this podcast. And one of the things I wanted to uh, highlight and, and, and just acknowledge here was that the first published book by a Guantanamo prisoner was published uh, this past week. It comes from a Mauritanian citizen. His name is Mohamedou Oud Slahi, and he's been in indefinite detention at Guantanamo Bay since August 2002. And he didn't speak full English until he uh, got to Guantanamo, where he learned and picked up English from, I assume, the military personnel and And perhaps he was able to get his hands on books while he was there in detention and and read them um, along, you know, with the times that he was being dragged away to be tortured and and abused. You know, there are the other times where he's just in isolation, like all the other prisoners, and probably had access to reading novels. And so he also had the ability to get paper, and he wrote out a 466-page uh, manuscript that recounts all of his experiences from the time that he was uh, arrested. Um, I guess he was moved from Jordan, um, and then he w- he was in Afghanistan, um, and he got picked up, and he was sent to Bagram, and he was there at Bagram, and then uh, he had this brutal transfer where he was brought over to Guantanamo Bay, and there's just this horrific stuff. That happened. I thought uh, I might read a couple things that he wrote because, oh, first off, before we get into the horrific like torture, the guy's very charming. Um, it's actually a really uh, there, there's some witty parts in what he puts down. So, for example, uh, in part of his diary, um, while he was at Bagram, he writes, "For the next nights in the isolation, I got a funny guard." who was trying to convert me to Christianity. I enjoyed the conversations, though my English was very basic. My dialogue partner was young, religious, and energetic. He liked Bush, the true religious leader, according to him. He hated Bill Clinton, the infidel. He loved the dollar and hated the euro. He had his copy of the Bible on hand all the time, and whenever the opportunity arose, he read me stories most of which were from the Old Testament. I would not have been able to understand them hadn't I read the Bible in Arabic several times. So um, he said he didn't try to argue with them because he just wanted somebody to talk to. And although the hot-tempered soldier's knowledge about his religion was very shallow, nonetheless, I enjoyed him being my guard, especially because he gave me more time in the bathroom and even looked away when I used the bathroom. Oh, okay. That's, I mean... Yeah, that's okay. So missionaries at Guantanamo. All right. <laughs> right. So so you've got, uh, you know, we're talking about like bringing in Muslims and you've got our own soldiers trying to convert them into people who 
are not infidels, which is, is basically like what ISIS is trying to do yeah. to other people in Iraq is capture people and turn them into not infidels. So, uh, so there's that going on. Um, I mean, there's really real torture that was going on while he was um, there at Guantanamo and, and then in Bagram. I will admit that I haven't actually made it to the bulk where he's at Guantanamo yet in reading his, his full diary, but there's plenty of stuff going on at Bagram that is horrific. Um, and uh, uh, when he was one of the first times he was pulled to be interrogated at Bagram, um, he was act, he, he was asked by um, the interrogator to you know tell me about your story, and uh, Slahi. Gave him some very boring details about his life, which he could tell were uh, not um, what the interpreter were not what the interrogator wanted. And so he, the interrogator started to yawn at him, and then said to him, "My country values highly the truth. Now I'm going to ask you some questions, and if you answer truthfully, you're going to be released and sent safely to your family. But if you fail, you're going to be imprisoned indefinitely to destroy your life. A small note in my agenda is enough." Wow. So the interrogator then asked, what terrorist organizations are you a part of? And Slahi said, none, which actually takes a lot of courage in that situation. Because the answer that he wants is to name al-Qaeda or some other organization. Right. So then the interrogator says, you're not a man and you don't deserve respect. Kneel and cross your hands and put them behind your neck. So Slahi obeyed the rules. And he put a, And he says, he, the interrogator put a bag over my head. My back was hurting so bad lately and that position was so painful that way. Uh, some, I guess, nurse or whatever, names redacted, worked on my sciatic problem. And then um, two projectors were brought and adjusted and uh, directed at his face, even though I couldn't see. But the heat overwhelmed me and started to sweat. You're going to be sent to a U.S. facility where you'll spend the rest of your life. You'll never see your family again. Your family will be fucked by another man. In American jails, terrorists like you get raped by multiple men at the same time. The guards in my country do their job very well, but raping you is inevitable. However, if you tell me the truth, you're going to be released immediately. So, and the wit for Slahi, he goes, I was old enough to know that he was a rotten liar and a man with no honor. But he was in charge, so I had to listen to his bullshit again and again. I just wish that the agencies start to hire smart people. Did you really think that anybody would believe his nonsense? Wait a second. This is the same guy. This is the same guy who also wrote that he was forced to have sex with three of his female interrogators. Is it? Yeah, Muhammad Uld Slahi. Yeah. Or Maha- I'm sorry, Muhammadu. Muhammadu. Yeah. Muhammadu. Yeah. So I well, I'm, I because I like went and looked it up because I just wanted to make sure because I tweeted it earlier. I didn't know if it was the same person. Mr. Slahi's okay. Yada yada. The 44 year old describes how he was told that he would be taught about great American sex and then he was tortured and forced to have sexual intercourse with three female with female interrogators. So this is from I'm reading from the Independent by the way. Um, okay. From the UK. Um. So. On one occasion, uh, he recalls in a partly redacted account how two female interrogators allegedly sexually abused him. Quote, as soon as I stood up, the two, bl- the two blank um, took off their blouses and started to talk all kind of dirty stuff you can imagine, which I minded less. What hurt me most was them forcing me to take part in the sexual threesome in the most degrading manner. What many blank don't realize is that men get hurt the same as women if they're forced to have sex, maybe more due to the traditional position of the man he writes both stuck both blanks stuck on me literally one on the front and the 
and the other older blank stuck on my back, rubbing blank whole body on mine. At the same time, they were talking dirty to me and playing with my sexual parts. Mr. Slahi remembers another time when a female interrogator told him, quote, if you start to cooperate, I'm going to stop harassing you. Otherwise, I'll be doing the same with you and worse every day. Having sex with somebody is not considered torture. The use of sex to degrade and humiliate him was, quote, part of their enhanced interrogation techniques, according to Miss Hollander. That's his lawyer, I believe. Uh, in many ways, I believe they were using people like Muhammadu to experiment what will happen when we do these things to people. Uh, will it work or can they resist it, she said. But what I believe was the worst in many ways was the fake letter that they brought saying that they were okay and that goes on. But yeah, that's insanely shocking. Holy crap. Battle um, lab. We talked about the battle yeah, lab. Yeah, exactly. So, so sexual experiments with people like Muhammadu because we want to know what will happen if we do it so that we can get information. Incredible. Yeah, so um, I think I might come with a section next week and uh, read yeah, a little bit more. He was more, yeah. So everybody knows, again, unless you're living under a rock, not <laughs> in a rock, but under a rock, that we had the State of the Union. And uh, I just wanted to highlight this one section of the speech that I think merits attention, uh, especially because... Uh, we just marked Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and it's a big deal, and we've had this surgence of this incredible Black Lives Matter movement, and it's a, just, you know, uh, a lot of energy coming out that's, I think, going in a good direction. And so Obama, in his speech, I'll read it, and I'm going to go line by line and kind of dissect it, and, and you have something to say, Rania, Go ahead, too. But it's like he, he said, we may have different takes on the events of Ferguson and New York. OK, you know, it's, this is typical Obama splitting the difference. You know, I'm not in red states or blue states. I'm a purple state kind of guy. So but surely we can understand a father who fears his son can't walk home without being harassed. Um, well, I think it's a little bit worse than that. Uh, fearing that their son is going to get shot and killed while they're walking home yeah. is, is actually... Um, and and it's interesting that he doesn't say who is harassing this person. Is it a is it a vigilante? Are we? Is he just? Is this like the Trayvon Martin example, which I think it might be, or is this actually admitting that young men, black men, would have to fear cops harassing them as they walk home from wherever they're walking home from? Um, and then he goes on, surely we can understand the wife who won't rest until the police officer she married walks through the front door at the end of his shift. Okay, but, you know, the officer chose to work that job, and, you know, if she doesn't like living with that officer and, and being in that line of duty, you know, they can have Also, there's not, like, institutional discrimination against police officers. <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's and it's not like and and actually, uh, I'll, I'll finish this. So, so surely we can agree it's a good thing that for the first time in forty years, the crime rate and the incarceration rate have come down together, and use that as a starting point for Democrats and Republicans, community leaders, and law enforcement to reform America's criminal justice system so that it protects and serves us all. So, just going back to this, I mean, I was basically like, I mean, really slay this false equivalency because there is no equivalency at all. I mean, giving the police officer groups the highest benefit of the doubt 
only 126 officers lost their lives in the line of duty last year. There were more than a thousand people, more than a thousand people, mostly minorities, who were killed by police officers. There is no equivalency between the fear of, uh, of and, and actually, if the level is not killing, if, if the level is not whether that person dies, if the level is just harassment, then uh, it's even. It's probably even higher. Like, it's up in the tens of thousands then of, like, 126 officers dead last year, probably somewhere around 50 to 100,000 people harassed by police in the United States, at least. That probably is even low. But 50 to 100,000 people harassed on their way home from somewhere last year. And there is no equivalency. And, uh, and then, again, it's just... I was upset because he's talking... Cause you know, he's just grouping the crime rate and the incarceration rate in there together. And it's like, really, we have enough of an issue in this country that you should pull it out and talk about it all by itself. This issue of mass incarceration shouldn't be lumped in as like a safety issue. It's like, it's an issue of injustice. I mean... Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, no, I actually, I had the same reaction. Like, his speech was pretty mediocre and like sort of... um like, there's just, like, a certain monotony to the State of the Union, especially, like, what was this, like, a sixth one? Um, but that particular line actually made me angry. The rest of it, I was like, whatever, to be expected. But that one, just like, ew, don't conflate those two things. It's not okay to do that. I mean, but that's, that's, the, that's the idea with the State of the Union under Obama is, like, the speeches are always, like, trying to appeal to middle America. And he, he thinks the way to do that is, like, you got to have respect for the cops and for the black people they kill in the equal kind of amount. They're both victims. Like, shut up. And then, and then to give you a setup for the last part of our show where you're going to talk about this movie that you passionately hate for the right reasons, Obama was like, rah, rah, we stand united with people around the world who've been targeted by terrorists from a school in Pakistan to the streets of Paris. We will continue to hunt down terrorists and dismantle their networks and we reserve the right to act unilaterally and as we've done relentlessly since I took office to take out terrorists who pose a direct threat to us and our allies and yeah we'll put a hellfire missile up your ass <laughs> no, I, that's not really what he said but you I felt like that's where that, yeah. I felt that like that was where he was going with that because I mean there was just like you know he was at a pep rally for uh, a, a military I don't know I think he, he could have been on an aircraft carrier with that can I ask you one question before we get to this next topic is how come nobody wants to liberate Saudi Arabia? Like how, how come none of these military, like ag- these these military aggression backers who like who like love intervention and want to save the world um, with free, you know, with uh, with with democracy and freedom? How come they never want to liberate Saudi Arabia? I'm I'm confused. That's a good question. Um, it may have something to do with the fact <laughs> that we're going to be training people there who are allegedly moderate Syrian <laughs> rebels and uh, this fantasy that you can create a moderate rebel in Saudi Arabia uh, with the Saudis' involvement is just an incredible thought to me. I uh, I really can't imagine what kind of like Frankenstein monsters we're going to be creating there, but I mean, they're going to train them in Qatar, too. Yeah, it's and... a story as old as time, or at least as old as the 1980s. Oh... <laughs> uh... But, but yeah, I mean, I guess the places, you know, like Bahrain and, and Saudi Arabia, the places where we can go and, uh, 
and train death squads basically like those those aren't to be liberated because they're 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 nice dark places where we can go and and work it's i think it's interesting that's... to me that that like saudi arabia is both the um is both the boogeyman that is used to 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 rev up like islamophobia like as a, as an exa- it's like it's looked to as an example by civilized um, white culture, uh, as look how backwards those Muslims and Arabs are. When like a lot of people in the if you whatever you Arab world, I hate using that term, but whatever, like despise Saudi Arabia and uh, are like and that it's just it's just funny to me. The same people who do that, it's like one day Saudi Arabia is the boogeyman, and the next day it's like Saudi Arabia is a voice of moderate like peace peace lovers. I'm just like pick one. Like, at least be consistent. Anyways, um, sorry. But you've been spending a lot of time taking on American Sniper, and you just wanted to take a minute to, I guess, express a little satisfaction that people are turning against the movie? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it's on a mass scale. This movie has, like, broken box office records in um, in ways that it was not expected to. Uh, you know, it made, like, $105 million in its opening, nationwide opening weekend, which was last weekend, Martin Luther King weekend. Um, <laughs> right? Like, what a way to... to, to... I, I mean, you could have gone to see Selma, but I understand you thought... Uh... I have a bullet was a better way to go right. celebrate your right. Well, so I talked about we talked on the show before about how the man is based on Chris Kyle. It's based on his autobiography called American Sniper. He's this Navy SEAL who was killed um, in 2013 by a fellow soldier at a Texas gun range who had PTSD. Um, he was the, he's the uh, he's been labeled the uh, deadliest sniper in American history with 160 confirmed kills, which just means like officially confirmed um, instances of murder, where a third party was there to to see it happen as well. Um, but yeah, he uh, he was deployed to Iraq four times, and so the movie is based on his autobiography, but it completely sanitizes him. And so I basically um, last week I was getting so frustrated with um, like how popular this movie is and it was like across the board i mean joe biden was like bragging that he went to the washington uh, dc premiere and he wept like um watching this movie and so i did two things i I read the book that's based on and i watched the movie um and the book is horrifying and i basically went and highlighted passages from the book that are you know very openly um racist uh, and very openly, like, celebrating killing uh, and, pray, like, basically saying, like, I loved, you know, I loved it. I loved killing people. Like, I loved – I only had – like, his only regret is that he didn't kill more. Uh, Iraqis are savages, or at least the Iraqis that he killed are all savages. Um, they have, like, a backwards culture. They only hated – my favorite part was when he says they only – they hated us because we weren't Muslim. <laughs> like – they wanted to kill us because we weren't the same religion as them. It's like, what? Mind you, this is a guy who says that he has a crusader cross tattooed on his arm um, in red to represent blood. Uh, and then goes on to say how much he hates Iraqi savages <laughs> in, like, one of the passages. I mean, it's insane. Like, and he talks about, like, uh, you know, he was fighting despicable evil uh, and, uh, like, just completely unquestioning of the war in any way. Like, he has a very black and white view of the world in general. Uh, at one point in the book, he says, like, I don't shoot people with Korans. I wish I want to, but I don't. <laughs> it's like, what? So, anyways, basically, I just highlighted these passages and put them on Twitter. And then I put them into a Storify along with the, like, because people, another phenomenon that's happened is people are leaving the movie theater going on social media and saying how they're inspired to kill Arabs and Muslims or to be 
uh, more specific to kill ragheads and, you know, uh, sand, you know, what's the N-word. Yes, yes. Uh, just like, you know, really, um, really these racial epithets. But yeah, they're inspired to kill Iraqis. They're inspired to kill Arabs. They want to go shoot them. Like, it's it's really disturbing. And so I also drew attention to that. And the store if I put together and it just, like, went completely viral, which is great. And it stoked some outrage against the movie. And, I mean, since last week, the whole controversy around the movie has snowballed into, like, celebrities chiming in um where seth rogan like compared it to the nazi propaganda uh fictitious nazi propaganda film that appears at the end of inglorious bastards um it's a basically like uh it's you know it's produced by <laughs> it's produced by uh, who's the propagandist the nazi is a famous prop- i'm like blanking out what's his name oh uh goebbels yes joseph goebbels it's like it says it's, it's like a joseph goebbels production it's like really actually funny if you watch it but it's not that different from american sniper it basically glorifies a Nazi sniper who just like mows down uh, Americans and Br- American and British soldiers. Who and there's even one scene where like an American soldier uses a baby as a human shield, <laughs> like um, to like show the moral superiority of the Nazis. But so he compares it to this, and he just like got trashed. Um, and I'm not a, I don't like Seth Rogen. Like I don't like his politics. I think he's like a very pro-Israel. Like he was like pro-Gaza slaughter. I'm not a big fan of his in general. He blocked me on Twitter. So I have a little personal grudge, uh, but you know, he was right on that point. And, um, and then like Michael Moore said something about how snipers aren't, um, aren't heroes. They're cowards or something. Um, or he was taught they were cowards because his uncle was killed by a sniper in world war two. And he, but you know, then he later said that wasn't about the movie American sniper, but it didn't matter. It sort of set off this like culture war by part of like this partisan bickering match where like then Sarah Palin chimed in and was like, God bless our snipers. And like all these country music stars chimed in and were like, I want to beat up Seth Rogen. Like (laughs) just acting ridiculously. Like, and it just, it's, so it's kind of turned the movie into this, like people who like it are now right wingers. Um, (laughs) and so, and that's a good thing in, in some ways because the movie, it's not just the whole Chris Kyle aspect of it. I mean, I watched the movie. It's very, I mean, it's some of the most racist depictions I've ever seen of, of Arabs, like, in the past, like, maybe decade. Um, it's that bad. I mean, just all the Iraqis are nameless. Most of the time, they're even faceless and just, like, wearing scarves. But they're nameless. They don't even talk for the most part. Like, it's like they're just kind of stone-cold people who have no personality whatsoever. You don't learn their names. You don't learn, They don't have families. Nothing. The only side that's humanized is U.S. soldiers, who, by the way, are apparently made of, like, paper and um, and Chris Kyle has to mow down like Iraqi women and children uh, who are violent fanatics because their culture is crazy uh, to protect armed Marines. Like it's like it's just like this ridiculous like it's like, this ridiculous representation of war that elevates U.S. soldiers who are trained to fight in war uh, to like civilian status almost. Um, that need that need like this protection, and then and then it like demotes Iraqi children to like terrorist status, and the only like all of all the children that appear in the movie, um, most of them are terrorists to like try and shoot. And, you're, and by the way, um, let me just clarify: it is not terrorism to shoot at armed soldiers. Um, I don't care what you say; you can disagree with it, but that is not terrorism. Um, but that's how it's represented in the movie. Um, is like these civilians who take up arms against the occupier are 
terrorists. Uh, the only time that children and women in the movie are not terrorists or are like innocent victims is when they're being brutalized by scary, very, very scary Arab men. There's one guy that's completely fictional and doesn't even appear in Chris Kyle's book. They call him the butcher. Um, and he basically uses a power drill to kill a child. He uses it on the child's head um, in order to teach his father a lesson because uh, his father had had assisted uh, or had collaborated with the American forces. Um, it's just so it's Whoa. like, yeah, it's like it's just the gratuitous like um, it's, it's really racist. Um, it's it's racist atrocity porn. Like it really is like the U.S. soldiers only kill because they have to. And it's in a very proportional manner. But like the Iraqis are just lunatics and just like hate Americans because they're crazy fanatics. By the way, the movie makes it seem as though Iraq was responsible for 9-11. Um, and it also, like, he goes there in 2003 on his first tour, and Al-Qaeda's there, which is not, like, how it played out. Like, Al-Qaeda didn't come to Iraq until later. They had Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was kind of like a propagandistic term to begin with. And, um, and yeah, there was, like, an issue where, like, jihadists did flood Iraq because the U.S. opened the floodgates after it destroyed the country. But, like... The way it's, I mean, the U.S. atrocities are completely whitewashed from the film. So, the, you know, the only film, the only thing that the film does that is like, or one of the most deceptive things about the film is the Iraq War whitewashing, and then also the sanitizing of Chris Kyle into like this likable character who was like an anguished hero who only killed because he had to, but he didn't like it. Which is, you know, the guy in the book, the Chris Kyle in the book, is like, I, I loved what I was doing, and I wish I, I only wish I had killed more. That's like a direct quote. <laughs> so. Anyways, so that's happened, and but the good thing, I mean, it's, it's still very popular. People are excited about it, but at least there's been some pushback, which is good. And also, there's been, like, Academy Award members, because it was nominated for six Academy Awards. I think Selma was only nominated for two. Yeah. And I imagine that has to do with the fact that, like, it's not that the Academy doesn't like nominating black films, or, like, predominantly black films. It's that they only like nominating films where the black people are slaves and maids. Um, As we kind of talked about last right, week. Right, exactly. So in this case, it's like, of course, it didn't get that many nominations. But American Sniper got six. But, like, uh, um, I guess people just weren't aware of the the source material that the movie is based on. You know what's true is, you know what's true is that uh, the Academy uh, or these people who nominate, uh, often they don't watch the yeah, movies they, that they are nominating. So... They, like, know the title, they know a summary, and they just decide that, based off of Buzz, this is a good movie to go ahead really and nominate. Stupid. It's so stupid. And, like, it's what's really eerie. Well, so, basically, Academy members went to the media and were, like, speaking anonymously and saying, like, they had no idea that the story was based on this guy who, like, liked to kill people and that they're now concerned that, um, that we're celebrating, like, a glorified sociopath. Um so, okay. Well, yeah. Um, yeah. Think... The only last thing I want to add, which is one more thing, is that this movie, you know, it's the reason I've made such a big deal about it is because it's dangerous. Because it's, I watched it and it's really good. Like it's like really well produced. I mean, it's got its faults. It's not like the greatest movie in the world, but it's very well produced and it's very effective. Um, it, it's like it's brilliant propaganda, and so it needs it, there needs to be pushback against this kind of propaganda when you know we still have so many lies surrounding the Iraq War, um, and we're also what it, the movie what the movie does it's most dangerous is it really legitimizes the ongoing military campaigns that the U.S. is involved with in the Middle East by portraying that you know this place is like this place full of savages that need to be put down. Um, 
and makes it seem, you know, and so that's what's dangerous about so, it. So, like, whereas, like, Bradley Cooper could go on the Today Show on NBC and talk about how this, this story means something to him because he can get in the mind of a soldier and wrestle with coming back home from war, and that's the way they can market the movie as it's, like... Maybe uh, an issue of a soldier readapting to life in the United States after becoming a killing machine or whatever, and but it's more subtle in that like there's this covert propaganda going on that really gets you to be okay with massacring civilians. Mm-hmm. Pretty basically, yes, yes, which is a big deal since that's what we're continuing to do. Um, yeah. Anyways. Okay. All right. Um, well, so I guess we're out of time. Uh, I think that does it for yeah. the show this week. Uh, one of the things I'll just say, uh, but I'll save them for the top of our show next week, is that I have discovered that on the podcast app uh, that is uh, that has our unauthorized disclosure podcast listed, that there are people who have posted. Uh, some reviews of our podcast. Uh, I'll probably read a. I'll probably read one or two next week. But I just wanted to mention these, and if you're kind enough to want to leave us a review, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, appreciate it. And for anybody who gives us a bad review, um, in the words of Chris Kyle's biggest fans, <laughs> I hope ISIS cuts your head off. <laughs> <laughs> mean that i really don't mean that sorry i just wanted to make a joke (laughs) all right so um thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back next week with another episode of the unauthorized disclosure podcast 